The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. Indeed, welcome back to World Weekly, which is returning after the summer break, and we've certainly got no shortage of geopolitical crises to discuss. But this week, we've decided to focus on the war in Ukraine and the rising tensions between Russia and the West. Joining me here in the studio is Neil Buckley, our East Europe editor, and on the line from Moscow is Jack Farchi, our correspondent there. Neil, first, I use this phrase, the war in Ukraine. Is there any ambiguity about that now, or is it just clearly we are looking at a war? I think there's no real ambiguity about that uh, phrase anymore. It was, in essence, a civil war anyway, a civil conflict uh, at least, uh, and we've seen over the last week or so fairly clear evidence of regular Russian troops, albeit elite forces, but actual Russian proper soldiers as opposed to Chechen mercenaries clearly operating in Ukraine. And therefore, it is a war. It is a war to an extent between Ukraine and Russia much more openly now. But it is important to say today there uh, is supposedly some kind of agreement on steps towards a ceasefire between Petro Poroshenko, the Ukrainian president, and uh, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. But it really remains to be seen whether that can hold, whether those steps can be accomplished. Um, And even then, this is only about stopping the fighting. It doesn't address any of the underlying issues or causes of the whole conflict. Yeah, and as you say, there is, uh, as we speak, and it's Wednesday now, um, uh, these encouraging sounding headlines about agreement and a big jump in the stock markets who are obviously looking for news like this. However, perhaps I'm being overly cynical, but it strikes me this is a day before NATO meets. I mean, so perhaps President Putin wants to create some hope that there'll be a solution because that will perhaps sow division in the West about how tough to be. I think that's a very good interpretation uh, of it. I think the markets almost willfully seem to uh, ignore um, or want to ignore any bad news or ambiguity and seize on anything positive often uh, far too quickly, um, I think. I think there may well be an element of Vladimir Putin trying to preempt both the uh, upcoming NATO summit in Cardiff and um, uh, EU moves to impose more serious uh, sanctions uh, on Russia. Um, and so that the timing is probably not coincidental of uh, his phone call to President Poroshenko and this talk of a uh, plan for a ceasefire. Um, But at the same time, it's also what Russia has been pushing for at the same time as Russia has been introducing more openly its own forces into Ukraine on the ground. It has been pushing Kiev very hard to come to the negotiating table. It looks like a two pronged strategy um, in essence. And so this may be a further move to press Kiev to sit down and talk, but with the aim, unfortunately, of keeping this as a kind of frozen conflict, not actually resolving it, but uh, stopping the fighting, but keeping the pro-Russian separatists in control of the territory that they've taken. And then that territory becomes a constant lever which Russia can use to destabilise Ukraine and to um, prevent Ukraine's integration with things like NATO and uh, even the European Union. Jack, I mean, you're in Moscow. Obviously, the central question that underlines all that Neil and I are talking about is, well, what is on President Putin's mind? What do people around you in Moscow think? Do do they have a clear sense of what he's trying to get and how far he's prepared to go? I think the best guess, and it really is a guess because there are very, very few people indeed, even here in Moscow, who really know 
what Putin is thinking and, and even fewer, maybe not even he himself, who know what his end goal is. But the best guess is that he is trying to achieve some sort of leverage over the future political direction of Ukraine, uh, as Neil is suggesting. There's not, certainly among the population here, there doesn't seem to be much desire for an open war with Ukraine. The best polling data we have suggests that most people wouldn't support an open war between Russia and Ukraine, and I'm sure Putin will be aware of that. So it seems like the objective is to prevent Ukraine managing to form a coherent anti-Russian policy. And one way of doing that, the way that the Kremlin seems to have been pursuing of late, has been to try and carve out a chunk of eastern Ukraine over which it can have some political control, which can act as a sort of veto over the foreign policy of Ukraine as a whole. It's interesting that you say there there doesn't seem to be much backing for open war with Ukraine because, you know, certainly sitting here in London, some of the more disturbing stuff that one reads coming out of Russia is talk of a kind of nationalist fervour there of people very much buying the Kremlin line about neo-Nazis taking control of the Ukraine, of global plots against Russia, and 85% approval ratings for Vladimir Putin. So is there a slight change of mood, or is it just that the mood's always been consistent? They want to push back, but they don't want to go all the way to open warfare. I wouldn't say there's a big change of mood. I think the key thing to remember is that most Russians don't believe that Russia is involved in Ukraine. So for them, what's happening is a conflict, and this is the message that's being portrayed on state media here, which after all is what the large majority of Russians use as their main source of information, and a majority of them trust it. What's being portrayed on state media here is that you have fascist Nazi elements in the government in Kiev fighting a civil war against a resistance of ethnic Russians, Russian speakers in the east of the country. Russians don't want a war with Ukraine in the terms that they would see it, which is Russia fighting against its brothers in Ukraine. But certainly, I think, in line with the message that the state media here is presenting, people certainly support the southeast of Ukraine, the the rebels in Donbass above the government in Kiev which, of course, is being portrayed to them as having seized power in a coup, being staffed by uh, neo-Nazis and, and fascists. So, Neil, I mean, if that's the view there in Moscow. Now, as we mentioned, NATO's meeting and President Obama under strong pressure to show a lead, to stiffen the spine of his European allies, the Germans, too, under pressure to get tough. Give us a, a flavour of the debates within NATO. What are the key questions they're going to try and resolve over the next couple of days? I think there are two. One, uh, very immediately, is there are calls, particularly from uh, some of the US uh, Republican foreign policy hawks to arm uh, Ukraine or provide Ukraine with weaponry, more sophisticated weaponry. You're also hearing those kind of uh, requests from Kiev itself and from a lot of ordinary Ukrainians. So that is likely to be something on which there will be discussion. President Obama on Wednesday in Estonia has spoken about the need to help modernize and uh, strengthen Ukraine's military, um, but carefully avoided talking about providing arms. I think the feeling in the White House and elsewhere is still that that would be seen as a very provocative step by uh, Moscow, uh, which could destabilize the situation, um, could be very risky. But that's likely to be one debate. The, The other one is how far NATO will go in increasing its presence in places like Poland and the Baltic states. Um, Now, there were agreements that NATO would not base troops in the Baltics, but those countries have 
understandably seen what's happening in Ukraine. They have uh, their own minority, in some cases large minority Russian populations, and are worried that uh, Russia could be tempted to do something similar in those countries. It may be that those concerns are overblown, but uh, I think they're very understandable. And do you think NATO will cross that line just briefly? Do you think that, that you'll see... Obama, who I gather said in Estonia, you know, I can guarantee you your independence is not under threat. We're with you. Do you think they're going to demonstrate that by actually putting troops in the Baltic states? We've seen people like Chancellor Merkel suggest that uh, she wouldn't favour that because that that would violate uh, agreements. I think it's more likely to be strong uh, verbal assurances. We're seeing that in what uh, Mr. Obama is saying already. Backed, of course, with these, this uh, rapid reaction force, which has been signalled NATO will set up, which could move into countries like the Baltics rapidly if there was a need for it. And there may be setting up uh, the, the, the agreement to set up some of the infrastructure needed to accommodate that force in those countries without basing it uh, in those countries. Jack, I know that you also uh, follow Central Asia particularly closely. How are Russia's neighbours to the east viewing this whole conflict? And how is President Putin's plan to set up a kind of Eurasian Union, including Kazakhstan and others? How's that going? Uh, Well, certainly they're viewing it with probably as much concern as those to the west. What's been very interesting in the last week or so is there's been a number of statements and reactions between Russia and Kazakhstan just pointing towards the strains in those relationships. Both Belarus and Kazakhstan, which are currently part of the customs union uh, with Russia that's been in place since 2010, and are the founder members of the Eurasian Economic Union, the treaty for which was signed in May and is supposed to come into effect at the beginning of next year, both of them have uh, demonstrated a fair bit of reluctance to follow through with some of the measures that Russia is taking against Ukraine and against and against Europe. Most obviously, Russia has now put in place a ban on imports of um, a whole load of fresh produce, fruit, vegetables, dairy products, meat and fish and so forth from Europe and the US and other Western countries. And neither Belarus nor Kazakhstan uh, have followed suit, even though they're supposed to be in, a, in what ultimately and ideally is supposed to be a single common market with no trade barriers. And then in the past week or so, we've seen a couple of very interesting statements, one from Nusultan Nazarbayev, the president of Kazakhstan, who said in an interview with State TV in Kazakhstan that Kazakhstan can leave the Eurasian Union if it wants to, if it's not in its interest, if, it's, if it infringes upon Kazakhstan's independence. And then a few days later, Putin, in a Q&A session, took a question on whether there could be a Ukraine scenario in Kazakhstan and more or less suggested that Nusultan Nazarbayev himself, who's been the president of Kazakhstan since independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, was the single most important factor creating statehood in Kazakhstan and implied that without him, who knows what will happen. Of course, Nazarbayev himself is getting old and and, and one of the most important questions for Kazakhstan is what will happen after he dies or, or, or steps aside from the presidency. Also, just today, it's been announced that uh, Russia is carrying out some, some military exercises near the Kazakh borders. So, Neil, let's just uh, end there with this this question that's been circling around this whole discussion about the intentions of Putin and how bad all this could get. President Obama, in one of his comments, said, look, we've always had world crises. They always feel terribly serious at the time. But, you know, he implied things calmed down eventually. 
if you, if you think back to the various security crises you've lived through, Kosovo, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, how bad is this? And could it even lead to a, a major war in Europe? My personal view is this is the worst um, security crisis that I've seen in Europe in my journalistic career, which is 23 years with the FT. It's the worst since, well, before the end of the, the Cold War. I don't subscribe to the view, some people do, that uh, that Mr. Putin is seeking to recreate the Soviet Union or rebuild the Russian Empire and is, is, is now embarked on some policy of expansionism. What I do think, though, is that keeping Ukraine out of NATO is something he sees as a fundamental security priority for Russia, a, a real red line for him and one which he is, he is prepared to uh, go a very, very long way in defending. On the other side, uh, I see very little willingness to accept any idea of compromise with Mr. Putin over that um, point, And therefore, that does... Uh, if you like, put uh, the two sides on a kind of collision course, which I think is a is a is a dangerous situation. I I, I hope there will be ways found out of this uh, crisis, but right now it's not very easy to see a way out unless we genuinely see more willingness on all sides to take part in big muscular, difficult diplomacy to try and reach a negotiated settlement. Neil Buckley, thank you very much indeed. Thanks also to Jack Farchi in Moscow. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.